called Conformed to the Image of Christ. And uh, uh, the sermon this morning, actually, the title, um, I always change my titles um, <laughs> sometimes, not always. But uh, the better title is, is not uh, Change and Growth, but actually the, the title is The Expanded Self. Um, so uh, hear God's word to us uh, from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked once when you were living in them, but now you have put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed and the knowledge after the image of his creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so also you must forgive. And above all these things put on love, which binds them together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Lord, we thank you for your word, um, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you pour your spirit upon our hearts and our minds, open our minds, open our hearts to hear, hear from you, hear a word, to direct us, to expand us as your people. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. The desire for personal change and growth um, is one of the most powerful that we have in life. We often go through life with a sense that we are not all that we should be. We wish that we could overcome bad habits or persistent sins that hang on in our lives. We wish we could be better fathers or mothers, uh, better spouses, we wish that we were more mature, or more patient, had more wisdom, more capacity to love and to give to others. We wish that we were closer to God, could experience God more fully in our lives. In the heart, there is a deep and persistent desire for transformation. Because we know that we are not, we, we were meant to be more than we currently are. And we have this sense that when we find or we become what we're meant to be, then we'll be free, then we'll be truly, fully human. Much of our desire to change and 
grow is rooted in the reality that we live in a fallen and a broken world, a sinful world. It's rooted in the fact that we're sinners. We have flaws and imperfections that need to be fixed. However, this doesn't explain all. It doesn't explain all the reasons why we desire to change. Not all desire for transformation comes from the reality of our imperfection. It actually reflects something deep within us as creatures created in God's image. <clears throat> A popular view of Adam and Eve that in the Garden of Eden was that when they were created, you know, sinless and innocent and perfect, they were complete and fully formed. That there was no need for growth or change for them. They were complete human beings. However, uh, that's one reading, but it tends to uh, confuse innocence and sinlessness with perfection that comes through growth and maturity. Adam and Eve were innocent and without sin, but that doesn't mean they were complete and fully formed, that they didn't require growth and transformation as people. And there is a, a tradition, another tradition of early Christian interpretation of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, in which Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, were created perfect and innocent, or they were innocent, and yet they were created in a, in a childlike estate, that, that they, they were innocent, but they had to, in a sense, grow up. They had to become mature. Incidentally, C.S. Lewis's book, Paralandra, imagined such a world, an unfallen world, when you have two human beings that need to grow up um, and mature. I think that this is the right reading of of Genesis 1 through 3, that when God created us, He didn't make us fully formed. He wanted us to grow and to change and to transform and mature. And that our desire for that in our lives in various ways and the ways it gets expressed is, a, is an aspect of that as being people created in the image of God. We desire growth and change because we want to be deeper people. We want to experience life more fully. We want to be closer to the Lord to experience them more fully. Now, why does this uh, distinction matter when it comes to thinking about change or how we change as people? I think it's because when we think about change, oftentimes we are focused on what's wrong with us. <laughs> we're focused on what needs to get fixed, that we're broken. And so we kind of zero in on that. And the reality is we are broken. We're, there's a lot about us that needs to get fixed and transformed but the reality is, is that deep and lasting change in our lives has to be something not as a, a reaction over against the way we're, we're fallen and broken and messed up, but it actually has to be a positive attraction. Positive attraction of an image of, of, of maturity that we're being drawn towards, pulled towards, rather than sort of pushed or reacting. And I think this is Paul's vision in Colossians 3 here of the new self. Of course, there's a lot of things in our lives that we need to, in Paul's language, put to death. A lot of sins, a lot of vices, a lot of things that stand in the way of us being what God created us to be. But Paul's vision of the new self is a positive vision. And it's really summed up by this category of glory. He talks about the new self, the self that we will be at the end, is a glorified self. That's his categories. And he says, and this is verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
You'll be glorified. You'll be like he is. And that's really a, the, the Bible's category for a fully formed human being, is a glorified self or a glorified person. So, but again, this is language that we don't usually work with too much, uh, that is somewhat foreign to how we think. And so I think it's important to unpack it. What does this look like? What, kind of, what does this self look like? And, and how do we start living in the direction of that self that we will someday be? I want, I want you to imagine this morning the new self that Paul talks about as a kind of expanded self. Think in terms of expansion, growing larger. The glorified self is an expanded self. It is expanded with the virtues. It is expanded with wisdom and understanding. It is an increased emotional capacity an increased capacity to love, an increased uh, capacity for righteousness and justice in our lives. So in the light of this passage, I want to I reflect on two aspects of this expanded self. And um, one, Paul instructs us, I think, in two ways. One is vertical, and the other one is horizontal. So there's a vertical expansion, and then there's a horizontal expansion. One is an upward and one is an outward. One deals with the reality of heaven, and the other one deals with the body of Christ, which is the church. So look with me first at Paul's first expansion. He wants us to embrace an expanded imagination for heaven. Set your mind on things that are above. Heaven there is the reality. Set your mind on things that are above. Now, of all the experiences uh, or expansions, rather, that Paul recommends to us. I think this call to be more heavenly-minded is one of the most challenging, difficult for us to, to grasp. C.S. Lewis um, says that the joys of heaven are, for most of us in our present condition, an acquired taste. <laughs> I, I like that imagery, that the joys of heaven in our present condition are, are like an acquired taste. It's like for many of you, you know that leafy greens, like kale and collards, is really good for you, but you don't necessarily order it when you go to a restaurant. You don't desire it. And we think about heaven in the same way. We know it's good for us, right? Or we don't think about it. We don't contemplate it. We don't really desire it. It's like a far-off country that, well, we know we're going to go there someday, so why do I need to think about it now? At best, I think heaven is held out to us as a kind of pie-in-the-sky incentive, right? Do good now, and your reward will be heaven. Or at worst, heaven is for us like this, um, a kind of irresponsible way of thinking about the world because it's a form of escapism from suffering, from injustice, and changing the world, and heaven is sort of this thing. But the reality is you have to confront what Paul says here, and you have to confront what he says throughout his letters, that we need to orient our imaginations above. Again, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. He says in Philippians, um, similarly, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Why is heaven so important for how Paul thinks about the self? Why is it so important for understanding ourselves? 
The answer is this. It's because heaven is where Jesus is currently located, and your life is in him. Your true self is found in him. He says, for you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. And Paul will say, he is your life. He is your life. At the present time, um, our true self is not to be found on earth, but it is to be found in heaven. Now, again, this is such a hard thing for us to grasp in our culture, because we, we just don't have a category for heaven. We don't think about it. Um, our world, our culture teaches us that our true self is hidden somewhere on earth, or it's hidden within myself. And so to find my true self, or to find my identity, I go within. Or I go without into the, into the world, and I try to find meaning and purpose in various things. But Paul tells us that you will not find your true self among all the things of this earth. You will not. Not by going in, not by going out. When you set your mind on things that are above instead, instead of earthly things, what he's saying is this. Don't think you find your true and full self in this world through things on the world, in this world in this world. So you're not going to find your true self through romantic love, meeting the right person, falling in love. You're not going to find yourself through your kids or your grandkids. You're not going to find yourself through the career you've always wanted or through deep learning and study or through uh, pleasure and adventure, pursuing your dream, carousing off everything on your bucket list. You're not going to find yourself that way. We do find meaning in these things. These are not necessarily bad things. But they will not give you your final self. See, um, when we make earthly things, good things like family and love and career, ultimate things that we base our identities, they become idols. They become idols. And an idol always diminishes you. <laughs> That's the thing about idols. They always diminish us. They make us less than what we're supposed to be. You will not find your true self in these things. And that's why Paul is saying, listen, you have to set your mind on things above because your true self is located in Jesus and Jesus is in heaven. Um, so then this question is, well, what is heaven? <laughs> what is heaven? Why should I care? Now, again, I think we think part of our problem of thinking in this heavenly orientation for, for us is that... Um, we think of heaven as this sort of immaterial, ethereal place, a, a place where you have little angels and cherubim on clouds strumming harps, and you have this bearded old man presiding over everything. I mean, we, we really have no imagination for heaven. <laughs> but this is not heaven. This is not the biblical understanding of heaven. Heaven is not some immaterial place. Heaven is a, is a kind of, is a, it is a created reality. It is its own kind of materiality. It is the place where um, all things are fully alive with the presence and the love of God. It is a place of, of weight and substance and luminosity and density of unimaginable pleasure because it is uh, unmediated presence of God through created things. It is a place in which all of creation, all things are ordered perfectly around the person of Jesus Christ, where God is all in all. Jesus fills all things. We think of heaven, the difference between heaven and earth often in terms of material terms. We have material and immaterial, but it's not. It's, it's moral. 
Heaven, in a sense, is that which the human heart's desires more than anything else. It is a land, it is a place that we are destined. And the material uh, sort of cornerstone of heaven is the resurrection body of Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he has flesh, resurrection flesh. And someday we will have flesh like his, fully glorified. Again, we, we just have a hard time in our imagination wanting this. And part of the difficulty, and this is honestly the real difficulty of heaven for most of us, is that to think about heaven is to, have, to be forced to accept the reality of death. Because the, there's no way you get to heaven without dying. <laughs> right? The, the only passageway to heaven is death. And we're all going to die. Every single person in this room is going to die. We live in a culture that denies the reality of death. And part of the reason we don't like thinking about heaven is because we have to then think about death. Death is the only passageways, and it forces us to confront the reality of our own death. But this, I think, brings us to a really central... I mean, this is universal through the Bible, through the New Testament. To set our minds on heaven means that we have embraced the reality of death as a necessary part of being truly human. Let me say that again, because to set your mind on heaven is who have embraced the reality and in, in the inevitability of death as central to you becoming a true self. That's very hard for us. There's a whole sermon there, but I need to move on. To set our mind on things above means that we live with this expanded sense, or we, we, we live with a sense of incompleteness and even longing for something that we don't quite have. See, again, we're tricked into thinking that the longings that we have can be satisfied by things in this world. And, and really, they're things that God has put in us to want us to long beyond what is here. To set our mind on things above, it is to live with a sense that no matter how wonderful and satisfying and good life can be here on earth, which it can be, it will never be enough. And that there is a place and a land and a time that will far exceed by um, exponential numbers that are not quantifiable, a glory and a, and, a, and a beauty that this world is just a faint shadow of. To set our minds on things above is to live with a sense that I have not arrived. <laughs> I am always on a journey, but I am striving and pushing forward. But there's, I think, a sense uh, here that we often have when we hear Paul's language of being a, a self and a true self and, and change and transformation where we can uh, be discouraged a sense of desperation or frustration that we'll never come to possess the glory that, that is held out here. And I want to draw your attention to the language of hiddenness in this. When he says that your true self is hidden in heaven, this, this has this sense of uh, your true self is, is kept somewhere safe <laughs> in Jesus. It's, it's protected. It's, it's kept somewhere that, that nothing can do damage to it. Nothing can steal it or harm it or take it away, right? 
If you build your life or your identity on things in this world, whether it's family or marriage or career or hobbies or anything, those things can be taken away from you. <laughs> and the closer you get to death, the more will be taken away from you. But to have yourself located in heaven, that means that it can never be taken away from you. We often, I think, get discouraged that I'm not changing. I don't seem capable of becoming the kind of person that God wants us to be. And I just want to encourage you, friends, <laughs> that oftentimes these fears are based on a false assumption. And the assumption is this, is that change in our life is ultimately our responsibility, right? It's on us. I've got to do it. I've got to man up or woman up. I've got to, I've got to work harder. And oftentimes when we desire change and we don't see it in our life, we can become discouraged and think that it'll never happen. But at the end of the day, change and transformation is not on us. It's not our ultimate responsibility. It is the Lord's. He promises it. He promises that and guarantees it that he will see the project, the renovation project to the very end. When he appears, you will appear with him in glory. There's a lot more to say about heaven here. So this first expansion of the self is vertical, right? It's, it's up. And it's an expansion of our imaginations, but it's really an expansion of our desires, of what we desire out of life. And imagine that there are things that we can desire, or ought to desire, that can never be given to us in this world. But there's a second expansion that Paul uh, calls us to, and it's horizontal. And it is an expansion that forces us to expand the space of our lives to make room for more and different people. And this is the, the expansion of the body of Christ. Paul invites us to embrace an expansion of ourselves through our participation in the body, the body of Christ. And for Paul, his imagination for the church and Colossians and Ephesians in particular, the church is Christ the head, church as the body, and both together are the whole church. Paul says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called into one body. And the way we experience Christ who is above in heaven is through belonging to his body below. Um, we often have an image of the church. When we think about church, we think institution or we think idea or denomination or unfortunately sometimes political affiliations. But for Paul, the church is the body. It's the body of Christ. It's, it's, it's a living, organic, breathing reality. It is the people of God together. It's a community. It's not just an abstract thing. And when we become Christians, we are put in the body. We are called to the body. When God saves us, he saves us to community. He saves us to belonging. This is central. We, as human beings, we're built for relationship. We're built for community. And salvation is being put back into true community. Now, I think nothing has challenged our ability to be the body of Christ, um, at least in my lifetime, like COVID-19. I mean, for a year and a half now, plus, um, we've been in a pandemic in which we're forced um, to be socially distanced and separated, to wear masks, to be uh, afraid or cautious, 
to meet with one another in person. And I, I believe that this is a very, you know, the virus, it's biological phenomenon that we can study and understand and treat. But I also think there's a, there's a true satanic dimension to this pandemic. And it is, it is this, it is that I think we have become more and more accustomed and habituated to being okay with not being together. We, we, we're okay to be isolated and alone, or just to kind of have our, our, our own sort of narrow world. Now, I just want to be clear. I, I, I think social distancing and masks and all the things we've done were necessary part of, of addressing the pandemic and might continue to need to be. So I, I'm not trying to make any political point here. I, I don't disbelieve in any of the reality. It's true and it's real. And I'm, I'm also thankful for digital technologies that have allowed us to kind of span the gap a little bit. But I think it's very ironic. <laughs> um, in the morning, I wanted to talk about how virtual church is not real church, that the actual virtual church mechanism doesn't work this morning. Our internet is down. So there's a whole bunch of people that cannot participate because there's no stream. Listen. Virtual church is like triage. It's a stopgap. I'm glad we're able to do it. But don't confuse virtual church with embodied church. It's, it's not the real thing. Like I said, it's a triage. It's a triage. I mean, it's, it's meant to just be a temporary thing. There is a reason why Paul uses the language of the body to talk about the church. Because a body, I mean, you can touch it. You can feel it. It has emotion, it, it's, it's, it's there, it's face-to-face, it's in person. I don't, I'm not making any dogmatic pronouncements about, you know, attending church with respect to COVID. Um, we all have different situations medically and are at risk in different kinds of ways and have different, come to different conclusions on how to protect ourselves. Um, but I don't want you to ever be, make your peace with virtual church to see that as an adequate substitute, because it's not. It simply is not. Um, don't let it become the new normal. True church is embodied. It's person to person. It's face to face. It's life on life. And it's an essential need. Community in person, embodied community as Christians is an essential need. I need to say that, because we, <laughs> we don't think that spiritual needs are essential needs, but they absolutely are, and they're always connected to the body. And one of the reasons why virtual church is not adequate is that it cannot expand us. It cannot expand us. You will not be expanded by virtual church. Because expansion only happens when it's embodied. One of the fruits, one of, the fruits of belonging to the body of Christ is that it expands us as people. When we belong to the body, it expands us, it increases, it, it forces us to... to to increase our capacities. I mean, this happens when you get married. It happens when you have children. It happens anytime you really commit yourself to belong to a community or something that is more than you. It is difficult. Like, if you're going to stick with it, you're going to have to expand and get bigger and larger as a person. Otherwise, you'll probably just leave because it's too difficult. But this only happens when we're together. I mean, I think we all have this sense that we're, we're really broad-minded and diverse, and we, li- you know, like we have, you know, we like all kinds of people. But I find in my experience, and I, I speak from personal experience, it's like I think I'm, I'm 
open-minded and I like lots of different people and personalities and I have space for them, but until I actually find myself in community and interacting and, and, and then I realize like, wow, I don't. I'm, I'm really small, like I'm like this little tiny person. I only like certain kinds of people and they tend to be like me. <laughs> I think this is how we all are, right? I mean, and that's why the church is so, so challenging to us. We realize it reveals to us how selfish and how small and narrow we are. And um, Paul wants us to expand ourselves. And, and you know, I, I'm going to, I have a whole sermon where I'm going to talk about race in the, in the church and, and what that looks like. And I just want to highlight it here real quickly where he says that one of the things he says, it's interesting, he talks about the new self. And then he says, um, but here in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's basically naming all of the various ways the church breaks itself up racially, socioeconomically, culturally, and what he's saying is like all of these people, all of these realities, rich and poor, black and white, Jew and Greek, cultured and uncultured, they all are part of the body. And to belong to the body is to, is to be a part of this world in close proximity. And actually, it's a lot harder to do than you think. <laughs> and that's why he talks about the virtues. Because we all go into community, we, we think that, you know, we think, again, we think we're pretty, pretty broad-minded and we can accept a lot of different people. But the reality is, we don't. And our culture tells us, like, the only thing you need in order to belong or to have a diverse community is tolerance. But Paul says, no, you need a lot more than tolerance. What do you need? You need compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You have to bear with one another. And you, if anyone has a complaint, you also must uh, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all these things, you have to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You might call these the virtues of the expanded self. These are the kind of virtues that we, when we practice and we embody them, they expand us. They make us bigger people. They increase our capacities to love and to experience the world as God intended us to. Nothing will expand you as a person um, like deep, true belonging in the body of Christ. But belonging, as many of you know, <laughs> deep belonging and commitment to the body of Christ is very difficult. Again, this is why it expands us. Nothing will expand you if, if it doesn't do something to you that you don't like. Belonging to the body is very difficult, and it's best not to romanticize it. Just like you shouldn't romanticize marriage. It's a beautiful thing, but it's very tough. <clears throat> the closer we grow in community and intimacy with one another, the more things we'll have to fight about, the more challenging it will be, uh, the more disappointed you'll be, the more you'll experience hurt from others and you'll hurt others. Um, the more you'll be offended. I always joke, is like, if you've been in the church and you've never been hurt or offended by somebody in our church, then you don't really belong. We always think that when you get hurt or offended in a church, you're like, oh, I can't believe this church. I've got to leave. And I usually say, no, welcome. You belong. Because that's what family's like, right? But I can promise you this, if you truly belong for long enough, um, the church will break your heart. The church will break your heart. But, 
but know this about the church. It is still the body of Christ. It's still the body of Christ. And it, it, is, it is not just the body alone. The body is connected to the head, organically and spiritually. And despite all the flaws and all the imperfections and all the wounds to the body, it is still a grace-filled body. It's still a grace-filled body. It is still a supernatural community. It is still a community in which God is working in the lives of men and women and boys and girls to transform them, to conform them to the image of Christ. So don't forsake his body because you're disappointed or didn't end up being what you hoped it would be. And when you grow discouraged or disillusioned with the church, please remember Jesus' body as it hung on the cross, stripped, naked, ashamed, bruised and bloodied, pierced with transgressions. This is an accurate image and description of the church at any time in history. A bruised and bloodied body that's pierced by human transgression. That's the church, my friends. And yet despite all this, this very same body is the one through which God saved the world. And it is the one through which he will eventually bring about the full renovation of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to experience the grace of the body, of your body, however broken and disappointing and sinful it can often be. We know, Lord, that you have ordained it, you have given it to us as a gift. Lord, we desire all these things uh, to be bigger people, expanded people, people with more love. And we are incapable on our own of doing that, but we know that, that you are working in us. You're working through all the things, um, all of our failures to accomplish your purposes. So give us the eyes of faith, orient our hearts towards heaven and our imaginations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.